Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Yeah, if you're new or visiting, my name's Evan. Uh, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church. So, so please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to jump right in. We've been in 1 Corinthians as a church. We're continuing. Chapter 15 is the perfect Easter text, you guys. We're going to read it in a minute. But first, the Friday before the world shut down. You guys remember it. March 13th, 2020. Sandy, myself, and the kids were up in L.A. that day at Woodlawn Cemetery putting Gregorio Luis Hernandez's body in the ground. You know the scene, fresh cut flowers, folding chairs, black dresses, lots of tears, and in this case, a mariachi band playing Poppy's Top 40. Uh, Because like billions of humans before him, he died. At 92 years old, he had a good run. But Poppy... Sandy's grandpa, that's what we call him. Uh, His death sparks all kinds of questions in our minds. For starters, where is he? Is he anywhere? Is Poppy in the ground, six feet under? Or is he in a place somewhere else called heaven? If so, what does that say about Poppy's humanity? What does it say about mine? What does it mean to be human? Are you a body, just flesh and blood and chemical processes? Or are you really a soul in a body? And if so, what is a soul? But back to Poppy. If he is alive and awake somewhere, like where? And what is he doing? And what's the shape of his future? And you can feel the gravity of those questions. They're really important to us, right? Because what we believe about the future shapes how we live in the here and now. Would you agree? But we, so we have a problem, though, when we talk about this. These questions are super tough because most of our talk about life after death is guesswork at best. I mean, a handful of people who claim near-death experiences and maybe have book deals, um, minus them, has anyone ever gone through death and come out the other side to tell the story? Has anyone? Yeah, the gospel answers that question with an emphatic yes. And his name is Jesus. So last week, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, we went through it. Paul defined the gospel. And it's this, the gospel is an announcement that God has come in Jesus of Nazareth to rescue humans from our own injustice and self-destructive sin. And now the invitation is open from God. The invitation is wide open. Anyone who admits their need of his forgiveness and healing is part of his family forever. That is the gospel. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul centers that gospel on the death, burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because according to Paul, our resurrection depends on the objective historical reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so right then, maybe some of you are like, wait, 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 wait. Like, our Resurrection? I thought this Easter is all about Jesus' resurrection. Now you're talking about our bodies coming up out of the ground? Yes. So let's read Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? 
Okay, so apparently some of the Corinthian Christians were saying, you know, we don't really think there's going to be a worldwide, like, rising of dead people. That's just crazy. Jesus rose from the dead. We'll preach that. But the rest of us just going to go to heaven when we die, the great beyond, end of story. And Paul's response to that is basically, praise God, you guys are dead wrong. (laughs) Followers of Jesus will rise from the dead just like Jesus did. For starters... All God's people through history have believed this, that there will be a bodily resurrection of God's family. How many of you have seen pictures of the east side of Jerusalem? There's all those tombs just littered across the Mount of Olives Cemetery. That's proof of the ancient Jewish hope that all of them were expected to come out of those tombs with the Messiah on the last day. Unanimously, God's people have believed this. Why did the Jewish people believe that? Anybody know? Because they were reading their Bibles, right? Tons of verses about this. One of the clearest is Daniel 12, verse 2. It says, multitudes who sleep in the dust, i.e. die, will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's tons of verses like that. Resurrection in scripture is always a concrete, specific word with one meaning. And listen, it never means going to heaven when you die. Resurrection is not a metaphor for heaven or your spirit lives on in a better place or whatever. Maybe you've heard, you know, at at funerals or whatever, statements like, you know, well, now that grandpa, he has his new resurrected body, he's probably running and jumping around right now and eating all the pizza he wants or whatever. Maybe you thought, I thought that, I've thought that. It's a nice thought, but nowhere in Bible. We're going to spend the next, in fact, we're going to spend the next three weeks in 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole church. It's the longest chapter, arguably, in the whole Bible about our future state, eternity. And listen, Paul doesn't use the word heaven one time. Not once. I mean, it's this major chapter on what's to come, the future, where God is taking the world. And Paul never once uses the word heaven. And so let me, some of you might be thinking like, well, what about heaven? <laughs> like, Like, heaven is awesome. Don't people go to heaven when they die? Yes, if by heaven you mean God's presence, then yes, we believe souls of dead Christians are somehow temporarily in the presence of God in the heaven, the New Testament call. But that's not the final stop. John Revelation, I mean, John in Revelation 6, he makes this clear. He has this amazing vision This vision of what's going on in God's presence in heaven. And he says in verse 10, quote, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony. These are dead martyrs, souls. These are disembodied souls. And look what they're doing. It says they called out in a loud voice, how long sovereign Lord until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then each of them were given a white robe and they were told, to wait a little longer. Wow. So not only is heaven a place of rest and God's amazing presence, but it's also a place of crying out and praying for justice and waiting for Jesus to bring healing to the earth. In other words, you guys, heaven is waiting for resurrection. According to Jesus and the authors of scripture, heaven, yes, may be life after death, but resurrection is life after heaven. 
This is the ultimate hope for humans in God's family. From Genesis to Revelation, resurrection always means one thing. Corporeal, physical coming back from the dead in a body right here on a renewed planet where Jesus is present and sin and Satan and death are gone because God's kingdom has fully come in the world. So according to Paul, our future resurrection is real because Jesus' resurrection is real. If you follow Jesus, here's what that means. What happened to Jesus will happen to you. When we say Jesus rose from, listen, we don't mean his spirit lives on like a butterfly, right? We don't, when you say he rose from the dead, we don't mean that. No, we mean the Jerusalem tomb is empty because the body's alive with flesh and blood and bones and organs. Like I love that scene in Luke 24, right after Jesus rises, he shows up to his stunned disciples and he's like, peace be with you. Do you have any food? He actually asked for food because rising from the dead really works up an appetite, apparently. What happened to Jesus will happen to followers of Jesus. But the Corinthians' problem is that they don't buy this. They believe that Jesus rose. They preach it, even. They probably even believe um, in some kind of disembodied heaven, life after death, which is all great, but they don't believe in their physical resurrection after heaven. They don't buy that. Why not? Because like us, they've absorbed the popular worldview that the real you is not your body. The real you is the invisible you, your soul. That idea was everywhere in the ancient world and it's still very much around today, right? Case in point, what was Pixar's latest movie? Soul. (laughs) It's amazing. I love the movie. One of Pixar's best, totally pagan thought. The soul, it's this idea the soul exists way before the body and the soul will live on long after the body's gone. I mean, the movie's main plot device is like Freaky Friday body swap, right? This is ancient pagan philosophy and it's nowhere in Jesus or Paul or the Old Testament. But even now, like we're still tempted in our mental imagery to fall into thinking, well, wait, wait, doesn't the soul live on forever in some esoteric sense that I can't think about? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And the answer to that is a flat out no. For Jesus and the writers of the Bible, humans are not souls that have temporary bodies. Humans are a body-soul union, both together. This is what it means to be human. Why is this all important? Because God loves humans. God loves the whole you which means he loves your soul and your body both, and he sees together as the real you. No wonder he wants to physically raise you, to be with you forever and enjoy family with you in what the Bible calls the new heavens and new earth. But our problem is often what the Corinthians' problem was. We don't really believe this in our lives. We're quick to preach or agree in the doctrine that Jesus rose from the dead, but way slower to really believe we will rise from the dead in a global resurrection event. So Paul is about to lovingly beat up on this way of thinking in, the verse, in verse 13 and on. So let's follow his thinking. Verse 13, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, so he's like, okay, let's follow this logic through. Let's just say Pixar got it right and your soul lives on forever in the great beyond. Let's see where this takes us. And Paul lists seven things that happen 
if we don't buy into a resurrection. And they're, they're not great. They're bad things. So, so here it is. Number one, if there's no resurrection from the dead, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. So if we don't rise, then that means Jesus never did because according to Jesus, his future and ours are linked. What happens to Jesus happens to Jesus' followers. If it's just our soul, like a butterfly, that flies away forever without bodies, well, then Jesus is a butterfly somewhere because he identified with us fully. And his resurrection never happened. Verse 14, if he has not been raised, here's the second problem. Our preaching is useless because telling people to trust a dead Messiah is pointless. It doesn't save anybody. And here's the third problem. Our faith is useless. Verse 14. So all this, all our practice, all the practices you do, prayer, reading, community, uh, hilarious waste of time. And the fourth thing, verse 15, more than that, we, the apostles, are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul, he, he, he's saying, I'm a liar and the eyewitnesses are liars if there is no resurrection. And the fifth problem, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Here it is. You're still in your sins. According to Paul, if you deny the end of the gospel, our resurrection, then you deny the beginning of the gospel, the cross. It's all connected. No resurrection, then Jesus never rose. God is dead. First Christians are liars. Billions of Christians remain unrescued. We're stuck in our own cycles of injustice with zero plan for healing. And the sixth problem, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Your dead loved ones, they're gone. Poof. No bodily resurrection, no family reunion. Your loved ones are gone. A lot of us envision heaven as this big banquet in the sky or whatever. We're all around a table and we're kind of a little bit floaty and everyone's dead souls are reunited in like a cosmic dinner. But Paul has zero categories for that. For Paul, no bodily resurrection means no reunion, just lost. And then finally, verse 19, the seventh problem. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Reread the list. Horrible, horrible things happen. If we don't rise, that means we're preaching a fake story created by ancient liars with delusions about stopping evil and reuniting with disembodied loved ones or whatever because ultimately we worship a really nice dead person. This is Paul's argument. So do you think Paul has strong opinions about the resurrection? Like you bet he does. To Paul, the resurrection of the dead, not just Jesus's, but our future resurrection as God's family, it's not just some side theology that Christians can debate about and kick around like some random eschatological view about like a random rapture or this or that view. No, with different charts. No, for Paul, the future resurrection is right at the center of the gospel. To deny it is to deny the gospel because in doing so, you deny Jesus's resurrection and the gospel rises and falls on Jesus's resurrection. You see, and then here's the good news. Here's the good news. Verse 20, you ready for this? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
<laughs> so Paul's like, hey, you, you, you Christians that don't live like God's raised, like praise God you're wrong because he has been raised and he's just the first fruit to fall. There's gonna be a resurrection harvest that drops into the billions. What happened to Jesus will happen to every Jesus follower who dies. If you're like, I don't get the logic here. Well, Paul unpacks what he means in the last three verses. Verse 21, he says, For since death came through a human, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a human, Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all be made alive. That's the logic for Paul. (laughs) According to him, all of us are born, quote, in Adam, which means we have a sin nature and death is our common destiny. I think the stats bear this out, right? I think, I don't know where to check the stat, but I assume the stats on sin is everybody sins. And, and uh, the stats on death are probably similar, give or take, right? Everyone dies. Uh, and Paul says that's because you and everyone else are born in Adam. But now, because of Jesus' resurrection and life, we shift from category in Adam to now in Christ, whole new set of rules, whole, whole new ball game. We're born again in Christ, which means we share his resurrection and life. We move from Adam's death to Christ's life. How do, you make, how do you make that move? You admit, this is how it's always happened. You say, God, I admit my need of healing. I admit my need of forgiveness. And I confess that Jesus is the true king of the world. And when you do that, You are united with Christ through baptism. And now, whatever happens to Jesus happens to you. Which means one day, at some point in time, you have to come back from the dead. Because you are in Jesus. Paul says it this way, last verse 23. But each in turn, this is how it'll work. The resurrection, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Jesus' resurrection set in motion a chain of events that cannot be undone. One day, Jesus will be followed by one hundred million and then billions of resurrected bodies of people who have followed Jesus. Because what happened to him happens to his family. Maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, are, are you saying Gregorio Luis Hernandez's body will one day come out of that ground? He went down at Woodlawn and he'll come out? Are you saying my body post-mortem will one day come back from the grave? Yes. That is the crystal clear teaching of the scriptures. No way around it. That is the shape of the future for followers of Jesus. The scriptures do not teach that your life is a two-step story. Life on earth and then life in heaven. End. No, it's a three-step story. Life, which is earth, beautiful but broken world. Life is hard. You die. Happy Easter, right? Um, and, but then step two, life after death or heaven, where you step into the reality of God's presence, absolutely in heaven. But that is not the final step. Final step, resurrection, what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death. Because, listen, when you die, your humanity is torn apart. Your body and soul aren't meant to be separate. 
Your body is essential to your humanity. You're subhuman without it. The real you is not inside you like this soul thing or whatever. And at resurrection, you guys, your spirit is reintroduced to your flesh and blood. And God raises you up out of the ground and fully restores your relationships with God, other humans, your own relationship with your body and creation in a renewed world. The prophet Isaiah called this the new heavens and the new earth. John called this eternal life. Paul called this the age to come. And Jesus called this the renewal of all things. I love that language. Here's Isaiah the prophet describing the shape of our future. Resurrection. He, he gives details, you guys. You ready for this? In the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 65, starting in verse 17, he says this. See, speaking uh, God's words, he says, See, I will create new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Verse 19. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Verse 21, it says, They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. You guys, there's building stuff and houses and farming and eating the food. And in verse 22, for as in the days of, for as the days of a tree, meaning a long time, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Our work is meaningful and enjoyable there and it matters there. Verse 23, they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. There's a sense of family and lineage there. And he says, before they call, I'll answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. You guys, God is fully present. There's no more closing our eyes and imagining him there and crying out for his prayer. We open our eyes and he, we see his eyes. And we see his presence and he hears us as we speak because he's present. And finally, it says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That is how the Bible talks about your future. That is what's waiting for all who follow Jesus. And does any of that sound like a floaty, disembodied state somewhere else? No. It sound, if it sounds to you like heaven on earth, it's because it literally is. <laughs> so don't think harps and white robes Question, can you do construction in white robes? Can you do farming in white robes? Can you go hiking or cycling in white robes? White robes are beautiful clothing for heaven, but not for eternity. So imagine fresh air in your lungs. Dirt under your fingernails. Imagine wine on the back of your tongue. Imagine that green stain on your shoes after you mow the lawn. That is what your future is like. It is life in a renewed creation with rivers and cities and streets and trees and creative beauty. It's the new Eden, you guys.
It's the place for those who are saved by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we say yes to Jesus' good authority and his love for you. And if you admit your need of him and turn to him, he steps in and he saves and he makes you new now. Yes, he starts making your heart new, but also fully new in a future embodied resurrection. For all who step into life in Jesus, you guys, your future will be design and building, creating, partnering with God and other humans and gardening and science and exploration and literature and eating and drinking and being with friends and loved ones and singing and worshiping and moving forward into God's future forever. That, my friends, is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. So maybe after all that, we're wrapping up and maybe you're thinking, so what does any of this mean? So what? Like, I believe in Jesus. Like, who cares? What does any of this have to do with my life here and now? I would argue everything. Because what you believe about the future shapes how you live in the here and now. Am I right? In the last line of this chapter, Paul gives his, here's why. He gives the so what. We're going to come back to this verse for the next three weeks as we walk through this chapter, because this is Paul's so what for the whole chapter. One verse. He says, therefore, since you will rise, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It will last forever and ever and ever, you guys. So what is the work of the Lord? Quote, work of the Lord. <laughs> well, in Jesus' own words, it's, and I quote, the renewal of all things. Yes, preaching the gospel, baptizing people and saving souls, that's central to the work, but that's not all of the work. It's more than that. The work of the Lord is universe-wide. I mean, read Romans 8, where God is working to restore the entire cosmos for his glory. So what does that mean? You're like, okay, get to the point. Listen, it means this for you. All the redemptive work you do in the name of Jesus, whether it's about saving souls or doing culture or art or education or business or you're an urban planner, construction, uh, plumber, uh, uh, you work for, for the betterment of the environment, you work on people's relationships, uh, family, you work on your own mind, all the redemptive work you do, it is all the work of the Lord. And it will last forever along with you. This is what Paul envisions. Do you realize what this means? It means if you follow Jesus, listen, you are living into a really long story, not a short one. So next month I turn 40. Yeah. 40. And, and, uh, I don't know if you're around my age, time is suddenly starting to pick up, <laughs> like a little runaway train, um, picking up speed. And I'm afraid, you know, in 50s, 60s, it'll be like a bullet train. And I don't know which decade I'm going to hit a brick wall, you know. And so the temptation for me 
is to start feeling like there's just not enough time. Psychologists call this time anxiety. There's not enough time. So I try to cram everything into my life and I have trouble relaxing and playing and being present to the people I love the most, all based on a lie that my life ends at death. I mean, am I, am I alone in my time anxiety? I, I remember the 12 years of high school felt really long. <laughs> or uh, 12 years of school, high school, that's funny. 12 years of grade school. I only did four years. Of, I had two years of kindergarten, though, to be honest. Um, my 12 years of school were like never ending. But then when I'm 30, you look back and you're like, wow, the, the 12 years after school felt way quicker than the 12 years of school. And, and now that I'm 40, it's like, holy smokes. And I can imagine by 60, it's like you can't even see the fence post from the bullet train anymore. Um, and, and, and it's just the way it is. And, and, we, and we need a perspective in this moment because the temptation is what psychologists call time anxiety. And if I think about how it's going to get faster when I'm older, I can start to cram senselessly now and not be present to God. So if that's you too, and then Paul said... If, if you resonate with that, listen to Paul. How can some of you live like there is no resurrection from the dead? You might say Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't believe you will. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is not the short story. It is a really long one. Your body goes on forever. You have all the time in the world. <laughs> when you're believing this, when I am, I don't have to cram. I have margin to grow in my capacity to love people. In other words, we can give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, which will last on forever with us. Resurrection helps us have a lens to see life clearly. And we can distinguish then the kinds of work and the kinds of behaviors that will not last. And they're operating out of insecurity and a hope to establish my name and influence or whatever and against God's influence. And I can separate the two and I can go, oh, this is correct for the moment. I can be present to my children here. I can say yes to this. Resurrection gives us the lens to view life clearly. So what does this mean? As a church, you guys, for our whole church, we just finished a week of prayer and fasting. Amazing week. It's hard work, fasting. <laughs> it's like deep difficulty and down to our humanity. And listen, at the resurrection, we as a church will see how that work was not in vain. We will rise up and see the fruit. This Tuesday, we begin our month of crying out. You guys, all through April, every Tuesday night of this month at 7 p.m., we are gathering here right on the promenade to worship and pray for God's kingdom to come. And listen, at the resurrection, we will look back and see that this month, oh, that's how it's lasting. That's how it's lasting forever. Our work will not be in vain. This July, you guys, we have a Royal Family Kids Camp coming up. That's a, that's a camp set aside to serve and love kids in foster care. 30 kids you have funded to be sent to camp and mentored and loved. And those of you who are volunteering, listen, 
uh, at the resurrection, you will see firsthand your volunteering for foster kids in foster care. It was not in vain because for those kids, you are an advanced sign of the risen family of God. And you'll see it in your body. If you're a follower of Jesus here, your prayer, your generosity, your hospitality, your ethical business choices, and that hard inner soul work to become more like Jesus and break the power of the past in your life, it's all the work of the Lord and it will last forever along with your body. Resurrection. So if you're here, and you're not a follower of Jesus, as we come to the table, <laughs> if you're, if you're well, first of all, you're brave, welcome. I'm, I'm glad you're here on Easter uh, with a bunch of Jesus followers, not knowing quite what to expect. Uh, well done. If you're here and you're kind of checking out the Jesus thing, listen, the invitation is wide open. You guys, join the resurrection family. <laughs> the invitation is wide, where you receive forgiveness and healing and belonging and the full presence of God forever. Uh, the invitation is open, which, which brings me to an announcement. I'm very excited about this. It's been a long time. Um, we're thrilled as leaders to announce we are bringing back baptisms, okay? <laughs> baptisms are coming back. Sunday, May 2nd, is the next Baptism Sunday. If you've never followed Jesus into the water, if, if you maybe are a Jesus follower, you've never been baptized, this is the invitation for you. To step into the kingdom where resurrection is your future. <laughs> and if you are a Jesus follower and you resonate with what I'm saying about time anxiety and, and getting your values all crossed, then listen, you might say and agree that Jesus rose from the dead, but you don't really believe you will. At least your life doesn't live that way. Then to quote Paul, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Praise God you're wrong. Praise God that there is a resurrection from the dead. Because listen, that means your life is not the short story. The invitation is to stop living out of your own short story and start living into God's long story. It goes on forever. One of the best ways we can do this is by praying the prayer Jesus gave us. I'm gonna lead us in it now. And we're gonna use this prayer all month of crying out, all April, to shape our nights of prayer. So if we could, just take a deep breath. Acknowledge the presence of God. Maybe uncross your legs. Feel free to open your palms. Jesus is alive. His spirit is present. The Father is well pleased with his children in whom the spirit dwells. You have the Father's love. And we join with Jesus. And we say, our Father, who's in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, you guys, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For yours is the kingdom and the power, the authority, and the glory forever. So be it. Let it be so. Let us live in light of resurrection. Give us fresh eyes to see things the way you do. Make us present to you and to others. Not to our own agendas first. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Before we eat and drink, we want to celebrate your goodness. Church, feel free to stand or sit or maybe move around a little bit if you want some space just to stretch out your hands. We're going to sing for the goodness of God. Praise his goodness. Again, we are all just responding to his first goodness, his first love right now. Let's sing. Before we come forward, let's sing this song.